Hey guys, welcome back uh, on the Bad Bar Podcast. I'm Christopher Menning, your host, but we're doing something a little different today. So uh, this is a new series, a new show we're going to be running called Table Talks, where I have a group of friends or industry folk who are going to come around and we're just going to chat about anything and everything over a couple of bottles. And uh, yeah, I think this is super fun. My first episode uh, was a barrel of laugh with three great friends uh, who all live in Bangkok with me and all in the industry too. Uh, so we had Gabriel Glieger, who's the beverage manager of Soho Hospitality, Philip Augustine, who's the spirit sales director for Italasia, and Daniel Elphinstone, who is the Picardi Dua Southeast Asia brand ambassador. Uh, these chaps are super fun, super energetic, um, and they've had a great career and a lot to share. So yeah, this is a really cool chat. Thank you to the guys for bringing uh, the amazing bottles. Uh, we had a couple of bottles of Abatheldi and an incredible Mezcal, which we're going to hear about in the show as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is going to be a little bit different to what you're used to. Um, but that's kind of the point. And I kind of wanted to instill a bit more fun into these shows and uh, this sort of conversation. And I guess try and imitate Joe Rogan a little bit. <laughs> so if you like his stuff, I, I hope you'll like this as well. Um, I plan to obviously move this into YouTube one day. I'm just sort of um, working out the best equipment to get for that. So uh, stay tuned for that as well. Um, and yeah, for all these amazing guys, you're going to find their links uh, in the show notes for the Instagram. So do follow them. They're really cool. Um, and yeah, please enjoy the show. Give me some feedback. You know, let me know in uh, you know iTunes. You can comment. Uh, or just shoot me an email. It'd be nice to hear from you. So thanks. Enjoy episode one of Table Talks with Gabriel, Philip, Daniel, and of course me, Christopher Manning. Uh, roll the intro. Benjamin Franklin once said, in wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the back bar. This is Christopher Menning. Recording in three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to On About Bar Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Christopher Menning. Uh, this is a new series. Um, I don't know how it's going to go. I hope it's going to go well. I've got three interesting lads in front of me who I know pretty well. Um, we're going to talk a lot today about their roles, about Bangkok, and just drinks in general. We've got some lovely bottles in front of us, which we're going to mention. Um, but I guess I probably should introduce everyone. So to start, on my left, we have the lovely Daniel Elphinstone, who works for Bacardi as the Southeast Asia Doers Brand Ambassador. Over to the other side, we have Philip Augustine, who is the spirits director, spirits sales director. Spirits sales director. There we go, of Italasia. And finally, but not least, Gabriel Glieger of Soho Hospitality and Havana Social. Chaps, how are you all doing? Thanks for being here. Very well. Thank you very much for having us. Good, good. Everything is amazing. Thank you for having us. Everything is awesome. We've got some nice bottles in front of us. Philip, do you want to start with what you bought? Because... This is delicious. Please, yeah. Um, so I brought a product that is, I'd say, still relatively new. Um, it's one of those beautiful agave spirits called Mezcal. Um, the brand in particular is called Sebusca, and it's, um, I don't want to make it sound cheap, but it's actually the most 
um, affordable mezcal at the moment in the market. Um, at the same time, it's also the only one that actually comes in, in three different editions, meaning it's the Blanco, the Reposado, and the Añejo. Um, it's also a brand that comes with a, with a very cool story, um, which was basically the product was developed, um, paying uh, homage and a lot of honor to the women that were fighting um, during the civil war in Mexico. So if you, if you look at the bottle, the label, it looks a little bit like a wanted sign. And um, funny enough, if you remember these old um, Western movies from the States, you always have pretty rough guys on those wanted pictures. Um, when there was a civil war in Mexico, there were actually a lot of women on there because they were pretty badass and uh, fighting side by side with the guys back there. So Sibuska thought, let's pay um, a little bit of respect to the women who were fighting back then to uh, make things happen and make things better. So Sibuska thought, let's, let's literally create a liquid to honor those women and get drunk every now and then. Well, it's delicious, man, really. I mean, the oak agent really adds a difference. So for the audience listening, like I said, this is a new series. Uh, it's still part of On the Bat Barn, but it's a really good way for me to sort of um, highlight Bangkok's F&B scene more and the amazing people that are part of it. And I work with a lot of these guys on different occasions, and I've drunk with them as well, and uh, hopefully they'll come back in, in future episodes as well. But I think all of them have got great stories to tell, and, you know, I really love Bangkok. Uh, the drink scene here is amazing, aside from the last 18 months, which we're not going to touch on. We've already made a rule on that. That's um, a subject we won't discuss. <laughs> exactly, yes. But I think maybe uh, just for the audience to get to know you a little bit better, we can go clockwise in a table and, and find out who is everyone. Uh, and Daniel, you are leaving us soon. Um, we're very sad, but this is sort of a farewell to you as well. No. But you're still That's in your role sad. and you're still in Southeast Asia, just to hop away. So, Daniel, tell us more about yourself. Yeah. So, um, my name is Daniel. Um, I am the whiskey ambassador for Southeast Asia um, for Bacardi. So, overlooking brands like Dewar's, Aberfeldy, Gregelicky, Altmore, Royal Brackley, Glendevron. It's a mouthful when you say it all in one. Um, I actually moved to Bangkok two years ago. Um, to take up the role after working in my hometown of Aberdeen, Scotland, um, at a bar called Orchid. Um, I took this job, not on a whim, obviously I had to think about it a lot, but I, I wanted to travel, I wanted to experience new things, um, and Bangkok seemed like the perfect, perfect location for it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a bartender by trade, um, like all of us, which you know is one of the great things about the industry, as opposed to you know, necessarily looking at people that are from way without the industry that there's a lot of people that have progressed and really you know kind of taken their careers to next level within Bangkok and all over the world um and yes I am moving unfortunately um I will be leaving uh, Bangkok on the 1st of November and moving to Kuala Lumpur uh it's actually gonna be my first time in Malaysia so I'm very very looking forward to it when I moved here it was my first time in Bangkok and I've loved that so um still keeping my role still keeping the job but um without travel over the last uh, two years, um, it would be good to get to a new market and uh, experience some new things. Yeah, it's been a bit rubbish here, hasn't it? So, um, you know, good luck to you. Um, stay in contact because we'll forget you. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> okay. That's okay. And, uh, I'll take out doers from my bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you leave, I'm like, I'm done. I'm, I don't want it anymore. Well, we've got a bottle of doers here today, haven't we? What did you bring? Um, so, I actually brought something that's not available in Thailand, so nobody shout at me if they, if they really love it or, you know. Um, it's the Dewar's Illegale Smooth. Um, what we've done ac across the Dewar's range is created a, a range of cast series finishes. So at the moment we are at five. So this is, was actually batch number two. We started off with the Caribbean Smooth, which was finished in rum casks. And this is a partnership with the Mezcal brand Illegale. And it's um, eight-year-old whiskey finished in 
mezcal casks. Um, hopefully, we're going to try it at some point. I don't know if we're going to try it now, but uh, it's it's we really will try it now. oh, we definitely we, will. We yeah, will definitely it's really interesting. It um, the Caribbean smooth as, as the start was, uh, you know, obviously going to be a success. It's it's rich. It's sweet. It's it's you know everyone's probably had a rum finished whiskey, and this was kind of a bit out there. Mm. Um, so it really adds a lot of those sort of slightly smoky flavors, really big hints of like green pepper um, and quite a, quite a bit of spice as well. So it's it's definitely definitely a little bit funky, um, but you know I couldn't think of anything better to go with uh, the lovely mezcal that Phil brought. So perfect, perfect. Well, talking about Phil, let's move on to him. How you doing, buddy? Very well, very well. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, very happy to sit down uh, today here with you guys and very. I think it's a very, in general, a very nice round because we're all quite passionate about what we're doing. Um, and yeah, to, to basically start where I went off on working in, in bars and restaurants, uh, because I'm originally from Germany, where I uh, studied mechanical engineering, o- obviously, right? Seem, seems quite obvious. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so that's what I did back home because I had no clue really what to do. That's and a very German thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like I grew up like, hey, well, what I'm gonna do after finishing school? And it was like, are, are you good with numbers? And I'm like, yeah, kind of. And they're like, oh, mechanical engineering it is. I'm like, yeah, why not? You know, like there was no, um, yeah, nothing really else in my mind. So I was doing that, um, and eventually I realized that being a student doesn't doesn't you know get you a lot of income. So I was like, okay, let's let's also make some money to actually live a little bit. Um, so I started to to work in nightclubs actually, nightclubs, bars, restaurants eventually to have a little bit of fun whilst being a student as well. Um, and yeah, funny enough, I actually enjoyed that a lot more than mechanical engineering, again, for very obvious reasons. Um, and ended up working as a, as a bartender back home in Germany. Did an apprenticeship in hotel management with back then with Marriott, which I then was with for yeah probably about eight years, different countries, moved around to Switzerland, moved around to the UK, to London, and uh, eventually made a, a step transferring from London to Phuket, which was, yeah, that, that, was, a, that was quite a move. Um, but yeah, really literally growing up um, behind the bar as a bartender to eventually at some point becoming F&B manager with a mechanical engineering degree. So I know my numbers, if I can say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I've always been very, very passionate. So eventually I thought, like, how can I, how can I put my skill set into, into helping more people behind the bar because that's what I realized I'm really, really keen about. And rather than working in one place, one hotel, managing a few staff, a few different places, I decided to swap sides, essentially. Go to the sales side and meet all the bartenders, meet all the bar managers, bar supervisors, head bartenders, F&B managers, and so on, to really, especially in Bangkok, being able to share what I've been doing before with them and yeah, not just selling products to them, but you know, show them how to use them, show them how to drink them, and really show them how, how in general to, to just make the most out of it. And I think one of the, the things that I appreciate most about my job where I am right now is that I'm really, because I grew up behind the bar, I would say, so there's a lot of competition in the market, but at the same time, I don't really see my competitors at competition because we share, like especially such as, as Daniel and I, we share so many passions and all we want is really to get nice drinks behind the bars in Bangkok. And I think that is, is a really, a really awesome thing to be doing. And I'm really, I'm really lucky, I think, 
because I'm, I'm at a point of my life where a lot of people still walk around, feel lost and don't know really what to do in life. And uh, I kind of lucked out in that way because, you know, what, what started as a side job turned really like turned my life around. And now I'm, I'm basically people always like to tell me, oh, you have got the best job. You go out partying and get paid for it. And while that is, I have to admit, it's a big part of my job, but there's, there's a lot more to it. But at the end of the day, it's really it's really good fun just to to have the Thailand beverage scene overall to develop and yeah, work amongst a few really, really nice big brands as well to get the support and make it happen all. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, how long have you been doing it now? How long have you been in Thailand? Um, so I got I came to Thailand about five and a half years ago, initially with Marriott. Um, I left Marriott after one and a half years working with Chalong Bay, the rum that's being produced in Phuket, which was also really, really amazing fun. I love the people who created it and who, who worked there. And a lot of them still work there from when I was there like three years ago. Um, but yeah, I, I guess they did, a, they did a very nice thing for me, involving me into the sales part of the business, because essentially I started to develop the bar that they have next to a distillery. But then I started to join different sales meetings, different events. Um, and so on, and I realized I really, I really love like traveling around, going visiting different bars, restaurants, hotels, whatsoever. And I was like, wow, this like, this is what I want to do. And then um, after being with Chalong Bay for a year, a friend of mine and I we started our own distribution company in Phuket for spirits and wines, which um, yeah, which really brought it to the next level for me. And then after being in Phuket for three and a half years, I thought, okay, wow, this is amazing. But Phuket is like a village. Phuket is really small and you can only do so much there. So um, at the same time, I, I was actually um, offered a job by Italasia to come to Bangkok, um, take care of the spirits on trade, meaning, you know, I, I take care of bars, restaurants, hotels and nightclubs in all over Thailand. And I was like, wow, this is literally what I was doing in Phuket, stepping up to the next level, um, moving to Bangkok, working with the people in Bangkok, which also gets you obviously a lot in touch with other people from Southeast Asia which is just another lot of amazing part of the job, you know, just getting to know people from all around Asia Pacific, really. Like if it's Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, whatever people, in normal normal circumstances, people would come over every now and then and we would go there. But um, yeah, it's it's just been, it's been amazing. I've been with Italation now a little bit over two years, planning to stay a lot longer. So anyone out there in Bangkok, if you need my help, give me a call. I'll be there. You, I mean, you're not hard to spot either, are you, Philip? <laughs> so, I think everyone knows you in this role now. And it's yeah, I'll, I'll be the tall guy with the elite vodka vest coat. Yeah, that, that, exactly, yeah. <laughs> very tall guy. Before and, you know, Bangkok's such a small place. I, you know, it's a big city, but I feel like the F&B scene is so tiny. Everyone knows each other. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of it. You know, we get to build these relationships and connections. And uh, I think a lot of people know you, Philip. Not just because you're tall, but because you're good at what you do. <laughs> Being tall does not hurt, though. You are very, very large. <laughs> yeah. Like, guys, we can't stress this enough. He's <laughs> really tall. And how tall are you? Just um, Two meters and three or six feet and eight. Six feet eight, God. And very wide. So it's like really <laughs> like standing up. <laughs> uh, Gabriel, how about yourself, man? Oh, so not hi. that tall actually. Thank you so much for having me. I'm not that tall. I'm just <laughs> 189, but um, I don't know in feet because I come from a normal country. <laughs> no metric system. So yeah, I'm Gabriel. Uh, I'm from Transylvania, Romania. I've been working behind the bar for the past 10 years and similar story to Philip. I basically graduated something completely differently. So like I went to college and got a summer job as a bartender because like I was a really ugly kid. 
so like i saw the attention the bartenders have like you know like girls and fun and that like bodies and that was like my first impression i was like i was like 17 like it's illegal to work in romania as a 17 year old bartender but uh, i was washing dishes and behind the bar like a summer job and basically i went to college and i went in front of the bar once it became legal so they moved me and i fell in love with the concept the idea of making drinks serving people and creating thing and your creation touches so many people so i fell in love with that concept but i was studying something else so basically i was studying general security management internationally hmm. um and in my second or second year of college, I was like, I really can't do this. So like, I, I was like dreading it, but like my parents were like, you need a college degree, you need a college degree. And I kept it for so long, but like in my second year, I already knew I wanted to quit. I just, and um, graduated and um, I was so miserable. I got a job with like, I got an internship with the Romanian government. I was so miserable in that nine to five. I was like, I can't do this, I can't do this. And my only joy was because I still uh, I was still bartending on the weekends, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So I was doing that. And uh, I, that's what kept me going, honestly. I was like, all this 9 to 5, I was like, fuck, I can't stand it. But I knew Thursday I would finish work at like 5. And after that, I'll be in the club by 8. And I could like work the entire night. I wasn't tired at all. So I just decided not to pursue the career. And after that, I started traveling. At, I I started traveling because of love. So I was back then. Interesting. Back, back then I was dating someone. So she started traveling and I started traveling, like following her across the world. Chasing her around. Chasing her. <laughs> like, you know, kids, beautiful love story. Everything was beautiful. And I managed to, because of one of my friends, he was in Trader Vic's Doha. So I managed to land a job as a bar captain in uh, uh, Trader Vic's in Doha. I stayed there for six months. And after that, I got offered a job in my previous role as mixologist in Treehouse in Tash Hotels, Dubai. Stayed there for like four years. And after that, Mr. Rohit Sajdev, the owner and CEO of our company, saw me on the bar. And he was like, did you ever been to Bangkok? And I was like, no, not even visiting. I was like, no. He was like, would you like a job? Like, really? And like, That's you know, what happened. You, yeah, and you know, like a lot of us, like in the industry, like we meet a lot of people on the bar. Like everyone is like, "You're so good. I'm gonna give you a job." He was like, "Here's my business card. Send me in your CV." I'm like, "Sure." So like a couple of weeks passed. Sent him the CV, and he answered actually. And I was like, "Okay." We had the interview, and after a month, I moved to Bangkok to take over Havana Social as general manager. I've been in Thailand for three years by in my i love thailand i fell in love with havana like havana social is like one of the biggest rum bars currently in southeast asia over 100 plus labels of rum we have the biggest rum selection uh in thailand currently as i know i might be wrong maybe someone else has more but and on the fact checks uh we sell before right before covid because we're not talking covid daniel can fact check me on this we used to sell one mojito every minute so like jesus so like we're like we were like we were like we were very blessed having very loyal customers and guests and people who came and um, we would sell literally a mojito every one minute we would order like 40 kg of mints 
minimum per day. So like my bartenders hate me for like picking mint constantly, <laughs> cutting limes, fresh juice, lime juice. You know, I sorry to jump in. I actually in my last place uh, in the UK, I purposely never bought in mint so I wouldn't have to make mojitos. <laughs> I bitch. hate mojitos. I know. <laughs> oh, no. I'm just one of those guys, but carry on. <laughs> no, no. So like we we really love our mojitos, and um, so and after that uh, I grew. I had the opportunity and the privilege by my company to grow and uh, to develop, and they helped me develop really well with Soho Hospitality. Our main company is Soho Hospitality, so we have multiple venues in Bangkok. We have Charcoal our Indian Tandoor restaurant. We have Above Eleven, our Peruvian Japanese. We have Cantina Pizzeria. We also have Soul Pizza, the original New York style of pizza. Havana Social, of course. And currently we're developing, we're opening Above uh, Above Eleven in Dubai under Marriott's. Uh, we're opening Havana Social in Vietnam and many more interesting projects, which I will tell you more in a different podcast <laughs> well i mean i was saying this um outside when we we're talking it's, it's actually really nice to hear these success stories and stories of growth after so much darkness from the last 18 months of people closing down so yeah i mean it's great because soho and all the brands i, I really enjoy I've never been to above 11 but i've tried food and drinks in all the other places so the fact you're sort of going global now is is pretty big and a really dark time i guess you know? we we were actually very blessed because um uh, our owner and CEO Rohit had a vision and he stayed with his vision and he always puts growing people instead of like bringing in people so he gives everyone the opportunity to grow so I started as a GM and currently I'm beverage manager of the entire group and GM so he actually lets you develop and grow and he pursues people before so that's why we were very lucky so like even under COVID we didn't let go of that love people and we always try to keep our like we're like a family inside the company Mm. How many venues do you have now and how many staff? Uh, me currently, I'm looking over two. So I'm looking at over temporarily as general manager of Above 11. And Havana, I have 67 staff mm. currently under my management. Uh, ki kitchen involved, of course, kitchen floor, hostesses, everything. Um, Plus, we have our marketing, which is separate. We have our own like interior design company, marketing company that help us evolve. But like, I'm, they're not under me. They're like their own beautiful entity. Mm, okay. So yeah, but under me currently, I have around fifty to sixty staff, which I have to manage daily. I love them all to bits. Like they're like the best thing that ever happened to me. They're one of the reasons why this industry is the best. Like not a day goes by. They're like my family away from my family, like because like we even now like the bars have been shut for so long, like even now like we still text every day like, guys what's up and they like text me like did you eat today and stuff like this. So I was like you're not my mom, like, you don't <laughs> need to ask me these things. You're not my mom. I I like that. I I was saying in um recently I think Megs Miller was really good at this about bringing family into the bar. And uh, that sort of leadership, that sort of nurturing mentality is what we should do in hospitality. We're people, we're people, people, right? That's what we're meant to do. Literally in the name, you have to be hospitable. You mm. have to be friendly. You have to be, you have to, this job is not for the money. It's for the passion. It's for the love. It's for meeting people. Like currently in this room, German, Romanian, Scottish, British, like this would have never happened in an office job. Let's be honest. Like it has, like honestly, like sitting at the same room, having a bottle of mezcal, a bottle of whiskey. This is mostly because of the love and passion that brings people together. And that's why I could never do a nine to five. 
Yeah, I don't know about you guys. When when I was younger, so I, I started hospitality when I was eighteen, and it was literally um, the bar my friends and me used to drink at, and it was like, why don't I just get a job here, get paid, and get drunk? That makes so much more sense, and that was kind of how I got into it. So that's a you. I got into it because of the ladies. You got into it because of the girls. <laughs> well, to get I, drunk. I got into it purely for the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was fourteen and the paper round wasn't cutting it. I I, I got into it purely. For oh the man, money. I had a paper. So round. you used to work. You used to work illegally. Uh, I don't think technically there's a minimum age for employment in the UK. I know in Romania you're not allowed to touch alcohol until no, no, so you're 18. So yeah, I, I think we're talking about bars. I was, yeah, yeah. Oh, so the bar was again, yeah, it was my local pub. Uh, we, and I was just picturing a 14-year-old Daniel like serving pints behind the bar. If you've been to some small villages of Scotland, I wouldn't be too surprised, you know. There's a lot, a lot of, you know, maybe just 18-year-olds going, ah, oh, yeah, I'll work by the bar. How old are you? 18? Not a problem. No one actually facts checks us. Like yeah. even even when I started, I was like, "Are you 18? Yeah, sure. Like, okay, here, here's the recipe book. Start learning. <laughs> You'll have a test in a week. If you're not, you're still gonna pour pints and wash glasses all night." Well, yeah, that's where I started. I was literally putting pints in like a student dive bar. Then I was managing pubs for quite a while in the UK along the south coast. Um, but it was still just pints and stuff. And when I got to uh, university, I started in a bar called Shuffle Bar, and that was cocktails. My first cocktail experience. Um, and the guy who owned the bar, he owned, I think it was called Be It One before, which is like a massive chain in the UK. Um, but the the level of uh, training was so intense. Like There was basically 140 cocktails on the menu. We had to learn everything off the top of our heads. And the, they gave us four tests, I think it was. And for every test, there was like a list of 40 cocktail names, just blank everything else. And you have to write uh, the description, how it's made, the measurements, the the garnish, everything. That was what really just exploded my knowledge on cocktails. I think, you know, that that idea of like intense training is, there's a lot of like more American companies that have, have kind of done it, you know, with TGI Fridays. Um, yeah. Trade the Vicks, Trade the Jaws. Exactly. Uh, TRG in the UK as, as a group as well. Um, and Be It One are kind of, I think, if I'm not wrong, Be It One all started off as TGI bartenders. Um, That's right. That then went and opened their own place and were like, you know, we, we want to do things our way a little bit differently, but damn, that, that level of, you know, that level of focus on recipe specs, that level of, you know, knowledge. Um, maybe people, you know, maybe they didn't want to replicate it, but, you know, they wanted to improve on it. So, yes, thanks, Phil. I will have more Cheers. mezcal. Cheers, guys. If I must interview. So <laughs> we were talking about the mezcal. We just did a cheers. Um, Age for eight months, right? And what barrel was it? <laughs> I've got you again. So <laughs> I had to. Yeah, I was I was trying to make a very like a natural joke <laughs> before. <laughs> no, so Siposka is actually aged in French oak barrels, which obviously it's it's a nice wood to be aged in. It's just like I, I find that a lot of brands always um, use that as a tool to make a brand sound more premium, if that makes sense. Where obviously, if you find French oak in Mexico, it'll be very likely ex bourbon casks. Whereas a lot of people who read it on the bottle, they think they actually buy a French oak from France and turn it into a barrel, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, it, it it gives it a very nice flavor. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah. we can agree on that. <laughs> I was, it, it's a little bit off topic from Mezcal. Well, it's not really. It's still tequila. Um, Patronix, so it's going. It's gone. It's going. What the it hell? Like, R.I.P. Daniel, I what happened? Now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Daniel, uh, you're with Bacardi. Give us the inside. Yeah. Um, Should we hold on to stock? This is very valuable information. So Should we hold on? No, so we need to know all. 
I, I've seen a few posts saying that, oh, this is marketing. They're just going to bring it back in like a year's time once everybody panic buys it. Um, basically, as, as you know, probably all of you know that tequila and agave um, in Mexico, it's a long, um, long growth time. I think you're ten looking years. between, it's yeah, basically between ten eight years. to ten yeah, years. Right. We're in whiskey in, in my part of the world where, you know, we're looking at yearly crops, same for wine. Um, because of that eight, ten years, you've got to look at production eight, ten years time. It's what happened with aged Japanese whiskey. And basically Patron just at the moment aren't able to produce enough of the really good spirit that they produce to put it into a coffee liqueur. Um, they've all, they've, you know, they've just announced their, for the UK, that they release of their sherry cask finish. Um, and I think basically Patron XO, it almost in a sense, has, has served a purpose. It made a lot of people, you know, know the brand. It made the, um, you know, it made everyone love their espresso martinis a little bit more. But I think now, you know, we're seeing espresso a martinis with totally, oh, yeah, I oh yeah. Oh so yeah, such a British slutty, thing. Huh? Slutty. A British thing. I think espresso martinis are a British thing. You don't really see them in, in Thailand that oh, much. In Dubai, they were huge. So oh. we even had an espresso martini machine. Yeah, we used to have those. Kettle One made one. Yeah, yeah. and Grey Goose made them. Grey Goose made them really cool, like nitro. They were like yeah. amazing. I keep keep asking Daniel to get me one here for my house for personal use, but like still, mm. really need one. Um, but yeah, but basically, basically, there's you know the teque- there's not enough tequila to produce EXO and all the other Patron products. And, you know, putting a focus on, they're going to put the focus on classic, really good quality tequila. Um, focus on maybe, you know, some more premiumization, more barrel finishes, that sort of thing. Um, so at the moment, there is no direct plan to bring it back in two years. It's not a, you know, we're stopping for limited supply. Um, it, it won't be coming back. Well, it, I mean, you know, I think it's good because we had the gin boom, right? And I think the problem with the gin boom is that so many people made bad gin and just branded it really well and that's what we had this huge issue with um and a lot of flavored stuff which is just terribly made but tequila never had that actually tequila had a huge boom as well uh, i think it still kept the quality its quality and premiumization i had zach lister on who does uh, itds like canned tequila sodas and he said when he started actually visiting um uh, jalisco a lot often he saw the farmers he realized that actually um yeah the agave is running now yeah. and a lot of people were starting to use um agaves that weren't matured properly and this is where the quality goes down as well so he's always made sure that the quality stays there but i mean he had all these celebrity tequilas as well right yeah yeah but what i heard is that right now they're trying to move the legislation and they're like buying agave plants like in india uh, south africa so even southeast asia they're like planning to buy land to grow agave because in North India, I'm not. I'm not sure. I might be wrong, but I know somewhere in India, they like there's a massive plantation of agave, and like people actually, big brands are looking to, for moving. But like, if you make it outside of tequila or of Mexico, you cannot name it a tequila at the end. Of you the can't. Day. But then, well, they do. <laughs> well, you know, there's that. But then, if you look at Japanese whiskey, they probably said the same thing at the time, right? If you move whiskey out of Scotland, it's not going to be whiskey and. Japan did very well. The the difference with like Japanese was you already had bourbon, you already had Canadian, like whiskey. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a purely Scottish thing. You know, you've got Irish as well. Um, Japanese as well was always viewed so highly because it was produced by or originally by a guy that had studied and and grew like was educated in Scotland. Um, Takatsuru, who who kind of started the the Japanese whiskey boom. As the you know the main master distiller and blender, he was educated at the University of Strathclyde or Glasgow, 
um, and then worked in Scotch whiskey distilleries. So there was always that kind of reverence for acceptance of how good it was. But I think most people, if you see a bottle that says, you know, I, I've seen bottles in the Philippines that you know, say they're tequila, you don't think it's going to be any good. Well, I mean, by law, it can't be a tequila. What would they call it? Just an well, agave spirit? Well, the, the, on, the only argu- the argument is that the laws for what you call it are, are so regional. So, like, as an example, yeah. Scotch whiskey for the EU, it has, like, geographical, you know, um, indicators in 120 countries. So, Thailand and Cambodia are, like, two of the more recent ones where if it's to be called Scotch whiskey on the bottle, it has to be made in Scotland. There's still, like, 60 countries in the world where you can make it locally and call it Scotch whiskey because it's all locally governed. Right. So we're, we're probably not gonna we're not gonna see any of these foreign ones pop up in the EU or the US, but I don't know if India or Thailand has any legislation on where tequila has to be made. I mean, this is true. I think so. <laughs> I think it's still gonna be very interesting when you when you have to determine the price. Right, just going back to your question, uh, Chris. I think the the favorite my first my most favorite name that I've seen was a brand from. Vietnam actually has a couple of those where it says tequila flavored spirit, yeah. mm. and then then you're good to go. <laughs> I don't know that that just sounds, I look at it and that doesn't sound like something like. But it's probably also like it's Im- embedded in our hands that it has to be tequila. Yeah, so like, that I makes think you worry. As we evolve. We need to see these things like you said with the Japanese whiskey and Sc- Scotland and Scottish. So like I think I think we will move on to agave spirit. Mm. and probably there will be a huge boom on tequila made in Mexico and it will become a luxury product same like whiskey that's yeah. what I think yeah. I'm also just not sure most people care we're like talking differently here for this group and this podcast but I'm not sure anyone cares if tequila's made in mezcal if they're ordering shots at a bar with lime and salt I think that's the crux of the matter it's about the consumer uh, education there and I believe a lot of people are educated now I think you know, people have got finally interested in alcohol and how it's made. And, and let's face it, quality, you know, the source is the most important thing, you know, where it's made, how it's produced. But you're right. I do think a lot of people don't give a shit and they'll drink anything that gets them drunk. But this might be more of a younger generation that haven't matured their palate and, and got into that yet. Because I, I tequila was what? Sorry, Phil. Tequila was the most sold spirit, or was the most growing ba- spirit, fastest growing, fastest growing spirit. Yeah. spirit. As I, I was, I was reading some things. Especially and it was in like, the U.S. Especially in the U.S. and uh, av- right after gym, it was tequila and rum. So both of them were head to head. Yeah. What's next? I think what's going to happen to tequila is the same that that basically already happened and is more and more happening to Scotch and Japanese whiskey. Where, you know, you have brands like in the whiskey world, like actually I, I get approached uh, by a lot of people, private customers, they want to rather than, uh, yeah, in particular in Thailand, rather than investing into real estate or whatsoever, they want to invest in, in spirits. Because you, I mean, there's a lot of different brands, like um, to, probably the two biggest ones right now are Bellwini and McKellen, that literally go, I think at the moment, twice or three times per year, they would increase their pricing. Um, and as, as Daniel already said, like there are some Japanese whiskeys that are just as good, I would say, and they're increasing even faster. And I think I think what we've seen on Patron XO side is the beginning of what a lot of other tequila brands will be doing. Because we've already been informed by quite a lot of, of our products that it'll be a lot more expensive very, very soon. Um, and I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think all the basic stuff from originally from Mexico could potentially in the future be replaced by wherever the agave is coming from. But I think, you know, like the big brands, the really premium stuff, they will just go incredible 
crazy in terms of value. So if, if I would give, I mean, obviously this is not financial advice, but, <laughs> but if you were looking to invest your money into some products, I buy some really nice, big brand, good quality tequila. I think yeah, that'll just Havana go. social. So <laughs> these big brands you see, you, you want to invest, you go inside Havana social, you see the big brand name and you buy it in the bar. But mm. I think that, you know, that opens a whole other conversation of, you know, buying casks. And like even better, yeah. Yeah, like like I know that uh, Patron was doing this at one point, and um, another tequila brand you could buy the entire cask. Yeah, and like it's it's big in Scotch whiskey as well. And I think I know you can do it in wine, you can do it in cognac, and uh, it's actually be interesting because it was you know nobody really understood it or knew about it, and now it's become such a big thing. Especially, I know we're not talking about it, especially with the pandemic, a lot of people at home with some, especially in some countries with spare money looking for, for investment opportunities and you know there's been real estate and a lot of people probably feel a bit bored by real estate so you know they maybe want to go in something different um don't know if you guys know blair bowman who uh he's a, a whiskey blogger and not a blogger actually that's a disservice a whiskey consultant um and he's wrote quite a few articles about you know some companies that come in as whiskey brokers and they're like ah oh, you're gonna make 200 300 percent on this every year blah 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 and your investment but because it's still a new industry they're just talking shite and they're just make, they're making up numbers like you're gonna make fifteen thousand percent over 20 years well I, I just don't know how you can quantify that exactly. uh, you know how can you realistically quantify the growth of the value of a whiskey or a wine and i mean but the thing, the thing is like anything like value is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it so yeah and i guess it's like how much is i mean of course patronics are though that value will go up, but unless the bottle was being discontinued, like how that much, honestly, I think it'll just disappear. Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, it's one of those products. To be yeah, fair, yeah, I mean, in a nice way. nothing against Patron Exo Cafe, and I love it, but like the thing is, it's either a ramp for other brands to jump on the train, and they're like, oh my god, there's no more Patron, and they will be like, do you miss Patron? Try our products, same, same, but different, you know, and. Uh, if that happens, but it can also go like very limited. And for sure, there are people who would, like Daniel said, like it's the value what you pay for it. And for sure, there are people who would pay a fortune for a bottle of Patron Cafe. Like we see on the whiskeys, we see even on tequilas, where you have uh, Azul, La Paz Azul, which is a tequila where it's valued for what, 5,000 US? Well, I mean, going back to Japanese whiskey, uh, Hibiki 17. I actually got a bottle, uh, and I was chasing. Me too. I was. Ch- Put it on the really? table. Where is it? Yeah. <laughs> Back in the UK, on in my uh, dad's dad's attic. In a sealed <laughs> vault. <laughs> yeah. With a I, hidden. No with one a go- knows. I, I saw when they did the article saying that they're going to discontinue for ten years or something, and I was like, shit, I need to get a bottle of this because I love it. It's a great product, and I was chasing my supplier for I think the best part of eight months. Just every month, like, have you got it? No. Have you got it? No. And then one month, she was like, Chris, I've got you a bottle. Thank the gods, and uh, I I bought it for a hundred and twenty pounds. The value now is about six hundred and twenty, I think. So the value shot up, and we're only I think three or four years in. Absolutely, yeah, we're three or four years in. I think they're gonna wait ten years. So when it reaches ten years, open it and drink it with Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> just just oh for my God. shits and giggles. For, for that scenario, you'd be interested to know: Will that bottle be? valued super high even once they start reproducing it like that 17 year old you say okay yeah but this is an old 17 year old exactly well this is it or do you have to that would be your selling point or if you're looking to make money are you selling it in nine years in what like six years time i've got a so i've got a story about 
Coke and Diet Coke. What you just said, very similar. Wait, I think, wait, wait, I wait, think wait, we'll wait. do a round table liquid, then. Right? Yeah, <laughs> liquid. Um, I got a story about Coke. <laughs> I got a story about Coke. Everyone thought about something else. Yeah, so I don't <laughs> I have mean, that Diet story. Coke, Coke, guys, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, like regular Coke, not, nothing bad. And not Pepsi, is, though, right? No so, Pepsi, no. so <laughs> everyone here is against Coca-Cola. Just to clarify, um, we'll we'll go around after that. But basically, I remember when I was working in Hotel Devan, and it was a hotel boutique hotel in the UK. And one guy came to me at the bar with his girl, and he says, "Oh, I have a Hennessy and Coke." So I was like, "Okay, great. Go for the VS. Grab a bottle of Coke." He said, "No, no, no, no. That that bottle." And we had this glass cabinet at the top, so you literally had to climb up to get the bottle. And he was pointing at a bottle of Hennessy Parody Imperial. Which at the bar was 150 pounds a shot. So I was like, okay, fair enough. Coke on the side, it must be. So I, I carefully pour this shot of Hennessy Parody Imperial, put it on the side. Coke bottle, a little bit further on the other side. And it's, he paid, what, 154 pounds, I think it was. Thank you. And then just poured the Coke straight into the Hennessy Parody and drunk it. Love that. I was Amazing. like, Jesus Christ, that is one guy that either has too much money or has no idea what he's drinking. I think probably a bit of both. All of us probably have a similar story. Yeah, but, I'd uh, like to go around. Can we start with Philip? Well, actually, I was just I was just going to say, because when you ask yourself the question, if certain products are going to go up in price, it's a very simple answer. The answer is yes, because there will always be someone being able to afford it. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I have a, my, my personal answer to that question is... Um, is um, I mean, if, if you should drink a spirit like that with Coke or with soda or whatever, I've, I think I've been behind the bar long enough to say that if there's someone who likes it and can afford it, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, like, who are, you, who are you to judge someone who wants to drink what they love to drink? Especially because looking at the, it's maybe a little bit long conversation, but when you look at the, how the wealth is spread in the world and the people with all the money in the world, what they actually do every day. Like I go, I wake up in the morning, I have my uh, Illy coffee, then maybe I make an omelette or whatever. And then there's some other people, they have maybe a Hennessy party, wake up. Co- with Diet Coke. With, in no, the no, morning. no, no, sorry. With, with, just, just, just pour it into their With Illy Latin. coffee. <laughs> I don't and know, man. I mean, uh, I've been to Hennessy. I love it. I, I'm such a fan. And the craft in the product is amazing. But I, I feel like pouring Coke over a Hennessy parody is like having... I don't know, foie gras and pouring caramel on top But that's exactly like that. what it is. Like the people, the people who actually can afford it are always the last ones to appreciate what's been done to the product. Yeah, this is true. The super premium will always... Mm, more like a showing off thing, right? Yeah, it's more like a showing off thing. I see it all the time in my bars. Like people will be like, how much, what's your, mo-? like, you know how many times I heard what's the most expensive bottle you have? just to show off and like yeah. they don't even care what it is you just say the brand name you say like Sebuska Aberfeldy 20 years and they're like they, they don't even ask what it is like, bring me one and uh, 10 Cokes and you'll go like uh, this is like a single malt scotch I don't care and just to show off and like Philip says like as long as there are people with money and to pay for it they will pay for it so yeah so going back to the stories Who's got a good story about behind the bar? Uh, so it's actually not my story, so I'm going to steal it. But it's it's funny because we're obviously here in Southeast Asia. Um, so a friend of mine um, named Herman, who I used to work with in Aberdeen, before we worked together, he worked in a bar in Singapore. It was a it was like a Chinese restaurant with a with like a dive bar upstairs. And he used to have this regular that used to come in like you know for one or two nights a month, and would just have like a whiskey coke. 
and he would just come in order a whiskey coke and uh the guy was like oh um you know you've been so good to me for the last year or whatever let me take you out for drinks tomorrow night you know you always give me a free shot or whatever it is and Herman was like yeah I'll, I'll take a free drink from anyone so the guy was like okay meet me at this hotel bar don't know the bar couldn't, couldn't tell you to save my life but uh he went to the bar and it was one of the big fancy you know, five stars turns out this guy had an account he stayed there you know for three four nights every month on business and uh herman rocks up at the bar um, if you ever met herman he's got like hair like halfway down his back a little bit hippie great guy but definitely more comfortable in a dive bar than maybe like five star although he does does love to get bougie but um he's sitting there and the guy rocks up and he's like oh we'll have two of my usuals to the bartender the bartender rocks up with the Macallan 25 and uh, two bottles of Coke and just makes them into, you know, whiskey Cokes. My friend is just like, oh, what What the hell? Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you drinking this here? And he's like, well, because I can afford it. And, I, you know, I, he's like but, like, but you come to my bar and have the house. And he's like, yeah, like, you don't have my favorites, so I just have whatever, but I like your bar. But here, my favorite whiskey is Macallan 25. I like my whiskey with Coke. Ergo, I like a Macallan 25 with Coke. And just like you, know, like you said, that explanation of, you know, he he didn't think, oh, I'm in the other side. He wasn't showing off. He wasn't trying to impress anyone. No, he didn't. The bottle wasn't on the bar. He wasn't going, oh, no, this is, this is the best whiskey. I'm having it with Coke. It's just his favorite whiskey, and he liked it with Coke. And I just thought it was the other side, because I think probably from working by the bar, most of us think people do it for status and do it to have that bottle and a place like Havana, you, know, you sit there with a with a couple of really expensive looking bottles. You get a little bit of attention. But Manager comes constantly to your table yeah. to check on you. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, suit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and it's just an interesting, you know, sideways of you know somebody who who just, as Phil said, maybe just had too much money, um, and just didn't give a shit. <laughs> so on my story, there was like this guy that was drinking a Macallan Twenty One, some a Macallan Twenty Five in Dubai with Fanta. <laughs> with Fanta. Yeah, with Fanta Orange. So basically, my bar didn't have Fanta, so we would literally hold three cans for this guy. Super high roll, super high spender. Very nice guy. He would always come alone, same thing, would never show off. But he told me something, and please do excuse my language, that stayed with me. I was like, you know, like I was a young bartender. I was like always cocky, like, you know, uh, always reading, studying, trying to be the best, you know. Like, And he told me something that stayed with me to this day, and it will stay with me for the rest of my life. He was like, please excuse my language. He was like, on my money, I drink whatever the fuck I want. And mm. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I if I like it and if I can afford it, I will just have it like this. And I think that's where I learned to step back and to respect everyone's opinion in the bar. Like, it doesn't matter if you, like, drink Hennessy or, like, McAllen. As long as your guest is happy inside your bar, that's all that matters. He needs to feel at home. He needs to feel welcomed. And like Philip said, like, exactly like Philip said, if they have the money, they will do whatever they want. Yeah, and, and we also like even in this room we have weird choices of drinks which other people judge us for it. Let's be honest. Very true. Huh? I think half the people, uh, oh, probably in a lot more than half the, maybe ninety percent of the people in the country, do not like a Negroni. I think most of us love a Negroni. Exactly. Like none of my friends like Negronis. Like when I go out and like around the Negronis, and when I'm not with the industry people, they'll go like. It's so bitter. I don't like this. And after two, they're drunk, smashed. And it's, I think that's probably a very good comparison because, like, when I when I go out with some friends, they would I, w- I would order a Negroni and they would order like gin tonic or whatever is like you know popular right now. 
And then they would try my Negroni, and they would think that I'm completely retarded paying any money for that, you know. But I'm like, yeah, but that's that's what I like, you know. So I don't care if it's like 100, 200, 300, 400 baht. Obviously, as long as it's like somewhere where I can afford it. But I, I would take it because I like it, you know. And then there's another five people that look at me like I'm completely stupid for paying actually money for that, you know. So I think we're, we're talking very similar scenario, you know. Yeah, but just on different levels, if you think about it. Yeah. Different I hate financial Negronis. levels. Yeah. You go on the record. Sorry? I hate Negronis. Oh, really? W- yeah. What's your That's favorite drink? A whiskey, whiskey soda or a daiquiri? Of course it's whiskey, but what's your guilty pleasure drink? That's oh, Cosmopolitan. <laughs> don't have to think about it. Well, Cosmos are right, actually. I mean, yeah, Cosmos are really good drinks. A, a, yeah. a good Cosmopolitan hits all the right... It's Totally, it's yeah. Sweet. It's, it's got a little bit of dryness from cranberry juice. It's actually really good. Yeah, Completely. I mean... Add, uh, the, add the Port Star Martini, which hasn't quite made its way to Southeast Asia yet. But. Yeah, like all these drinks, like... Like you know, like that was my thing for a very long time. That like people would judge you, like, oh, you're not, you're having a cosmopolitan. Like that's a girly drink. I always tell them, like, there's no such thing as girly well, or guy drinks. I was like, there's no such thing. I was like, I'm like Phil said, like exactly in this scenario, I was like, I drink whatever I like. Mm. Those guys drink whatever they like. So if I want to hold a martini glass with a pink drink inside of it, or Phil wants to hold that two meters zero seven, I don't think no one will tell Phil that. That's a girly drink. Right, true. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was I'm the sure stigma from, <laughs> was it Sex in the City, where the Cosmo became sort of a widescreen population and, and, you know, everyone saw that. But, yeah, you're right. A, a well-made Cosmopolitan, pretty fucking Actually, tasty. I also, this is one of the drinks where my my entire career when I started, I thought that's like the worst drink you can have as a guy, as a bartender, as a person who likes drinks. And um, I tell you what made the biggest difference of my life. When I was managing um, a bar in London, every morning we got fresh pressed cranberry juice. Nice. If anyone ever goes to a place where you can get a cosmopolitan made with fresh pressed cranberry juice, you will understand that this got it's got nothing to do with male or female or whatever. Elevated, yeah. I mean, I've you're never sh- had that. Yeah, <laughs> that's really intense. Where's this place in London? So all of us <laughs> take a trip? Yeah, you, you won't be able to get there. Why? Because I'm Romanian? No, because you're from, Trans- <laughs> because you're from Transylvania and everybody thinks you're a vampire. <laughs> guys, just to be on record... I'm so glad you said that. Guys, I- just to be on record... I've been around for 300 years in Transylvania. I never <laughs> saw a vampire. I swear to God. 300 years in Transylvania, I never saw a vampire. I, I don't know say, what you're talking you're about. You're the only person I've ever met from Transylvania. I really did think for a long time it was just in stories and it was like <laughs> just a big uh, A place. lot of people actually think that it's this beautiful region upside in north, north, northwest of Romania. It's like all in mountains and rivers and like amazing hospitality bars full of dark castles and yeah we have a lot of castles and culture and like we have a lot of Austrian uh, heritage and a lot of Hungarian like heritage and but it's a beautiful place and like most one of the most hospitable places you'll ever be no matter Mm. where you're from you will always welcome since I was a kid my mom was like always teaching me and my dad were like whoever comes in your house you need to eat. You need to drink. Like, if you walk inside my house, you have to have lunch with us. You have to have drinks with us. And, like, that goes inside you since you're a kid. So, like, you know that no matter who you are, you always have to look after the person who is at your door. No matter friend, foe, or enemy, you still need to take care of them. Hmm. So, it's it's beautiful. And I highly recommend everyone to go, especially to East Europe. East Europe is the best. Yeah, I mean... I, you know, from the UK, I know a lot of people go to Eastern Europe. I've never been to any of it. I, I'm sorry to say I will go one day, but 
I don't know why it's never appealed to me. I'm not sure why. But I mean, I'll take you as my special guest. That sounds great. To we'll your... do a trip. Okay, like a let's Euro do it. Trip. A to Euro trip. East Europe. Only. Perfect. <laughs> Phil will drive. Yeah, make sure you have insurance before you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, we. I think we should finish up on the mezcal and let Dan speak about the Aberfeldy you bought. Yeah. What, no what do you want to do, doers? I mean, which one would you prefer, man? Um, we'll let you guys pick. No, no, I, I've been waiting for that bottle for over a year since they announced it. I'm not going to wait for that. Either that or I'm going to steal it. Right, today. you were doing the Aberfeldy. And then I think... Um, I want the Dewar's. Oh, it was the Dewar's? Yeah, oh. yeah I, I want that. I've been waiting since Damn. they announced okay, it. I've okay. been texting him. And like like you've been waiting for the Hibiki. I was like, can you get me a bottle? Can you get me a bottle? Can you get me a bottle? And it's finally here. Well, I think while uh, while we're pouring this around the table... I'd also like to talk about Bangkok because all of us guys love Bangkok. Except for Dan, that's why he's leaving. But um, we love Bangkok. Bangkok's great. The F&B scene is amazing. I, I came here three years ago or a little bit over three years ago to literally promote food and drink for the rest of the world. That's what I do with gastronomy lifestyle. And um, I think we can go around the table and maybe talk about what everyone loves about it. For those who are listening, you can actually go in the show notes and look at the link for Beverage Network, which is my Facebook group. And we talk a lot about sort of industry topics and news. And every Monday, I highlight a member. And Gabriel, you were the member of this week, the yes, professional of the so week. Much for that. No, no worries. And really appreciate um, it. it was great to have you sort of, you know, be able to show off to the world about what you do. And, you know, one of the things you said about loving Bangkok is because it never sleeps and it's people are hospitable and happy. And, it, you know, tell us more about that, why you love Bangkok and why you're still here. Like the first time I never been to Bangkok, honestly, before moving here, like I saw, of course, I had the very bad impression of Hangover movie and like all of the media and coverage, but yeah. I never actually visited it. I've been to other countries in Asia. I've been to India. I've been to Dubai, Middle East and so on, but like I never visited. So the first moment I landed in Thailand, it was also my first time visiting. So like when I reached, I was very blessed because... I met a lot of wonderful people in this, in especially in the hospitality industry that are still very close to me, but they were welcoming. They were like, oh my God, like you just came, let us show, let us show you around. Like, let me like feel like that's how I got really close to Phil because he's one of my best friends and uh, stop touching me. They're touching each other now. Oh, <laughs> so like, he was like, oh, come, I'll show you this bar and I'll show you this bar and let's go eat street food here. And like the people, like even the people on the street food would be like, Oh, you have to try this on the menu and oh, they would remember and that was the thing that stayed with me for a very long time you would see like street food vendors who were so warm that you would pass after like a couple of weeks and they were like oh last time you had like the cat the kapow you need to try this and i was like man that's that's an am and people are just warm and very friendly in this country like everyone smiles that's why it's called that's why it's called like the land of smiles because like everyone smiles and everyone's super happy and it's like it's welcoming plus it never sleeps you can literally go have a drink any day like 24 7 24 7 yeah this is true i mean philip you probably visit more bars than most of us tell us about <laughs> your sort most of people in bangkok yeah <laughs> but that's part of your job right so you get to see all these amazing venues and the one thing i found about bangkok is that it's grown exponentially and i think it's grown too far sometimes because i think the skill level is not quite catching up but um, since I've been here, I've seen some amazing bars pop up. What's been your experience of it? Um, I think for me, it's been a very, very interesting journey in Thailand because when I first got here, obviously, I started to uh, to live and work in Phuket. 
which is very, very different from Bangkok. So moving from London to Phuket, being in, uh, I mean, when I, when I moved five and a half years ago, it was one of the best years Phuket ever had. So a lot of tourists, a lot of different people, a lot of money. Um, and as many of you probably know, people that are very, very much dominated by tourism, um, uh, people and places, obviously, um, things work a little bit different. So Phuket is not exactly what I would what I would choose to represent Thailand. And this is something that I get a lot, especially in being German. Like, obviously, I don't want to talk bad about my family, but my entire family told me that I'm crazy moving to Thailand because it's the land of, you know, a lot of bad stuff, a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of prostitution and all, you know. I mean, there is some of that. <laughs> I mean, that's everywhere in the world, guys. Come on. Yeah, true. You can find that in Germany, Romania, Scotland. It's just like, yeah, like I, I feel like Thailand was the perfect example because like Thailand has a lot of stereotypes and unfortunately a lot of them are not very not very positive. Um, but yeah, once moving here, and again, you know, I started in Phuket, very much tourism. Um, a lot of people, you know, literally like in and out, you know, they would come for a week or two and then they would leave and you would never see them again. But it's been an amazing journey moving to Bangkok after Phuket and then travel. I've been traveling around, uh, around in Thailand. I've done a lot of road trips and seen a lot of the city side, the countryside, the ocean side um, and, and anything in between, really. And uh, I must say it's one of it is one of the most amazing places I've been so far in the world. You are amazing. Thank you, my love. No, but especially like Gabi said, like people are really, um, really nice. And actually, I just, I just want to, when you compare Phuket to Bangkok in Europe, people would say Phuket is an amazing place with tourism, whatever. Um, beaches, everything is beautiful. And Bangkok is sort of like Sin City. There's like drugs, there's alcohol, there's prostitution, there's all of that. And having lived in both places for long, um, if, if anyone's listening who's outside from Thailand, it's actually, it's, it's, pretty much the other way around where and it, it makes total sense because in Phuket you have So you're saying Phuket is in city. Phuket is pretty much like uh, ma many areas in Phuket are really because they're so dominated by tourists, you know? Like the local people who live who work there, they get really influenced by people who would just stop by for a week, you know, they would get drunk, they would party and whatever and then literally a lot of it's, it's very unfortunate but many people who live and work in Phuket they think that is you know, that is what, I don't know, Europeans, Americans, whatever, stand for. And then you move to Bangkok where people are a lot more um, a lot more in touch with different nationalities because they actually live in Bangkok, you know. Like we have tons of French, Italian, German, not so many Romanian, um, a few English and well, a lot very of... Very rare, ladies and gentlemen. A, a lot of nationalities. Well, creme de la creme. But, but in Bangkok, because people live there, you know, they work there and they just, they... They interact with the locals. They like, like Gabi said, like you. Know, there's um, a lot of amazing places in central Bangkok, in not necessarily only in the central, but like, like anywhere in the city where you can go, you can have really, really amazing food. For I don't know, you can have a meal for ten thousand dollars. You can have a meal for one dollar, and it'll be. It, it can both be amazing, you know. And the people serving you also, most of them, fantastic, you know, phenomenal. And uh, obviously, this is one of the reasons why I enjoy my job the most because I get to see all of them, you know. I get to have, have dinner in a place where I have a, a whiskey soda and a, a pad thai, which hopefully most of the listeners know, and I'll pay two, two or three dollars, you know. And then 
the, the week after we go to like some sort of fine dining restaurant that we work a lot with and then we spend six seven hundred dollars per person you know you know this is the thing like i think every city has this dark underbelly and bangkok definitely has a dark side but um you're right there are some incredible places and i think you can live very very well if you have the money to live here and even still like uh touching on the point you said about you know going to street food or fine dining you literally can like you can go to you know the 20th floor of a highest high story building have an amazing mission star experience and then one minute around the corner you probably have the best chicken rice of your life for like a pound and it that that's how diverse bangkok is and i love the fact that it's built up on this sort of mess of cultures but it's a beautiful chaos that's that's the way i see bangkok singapore i love singapore but i don't know what you guys think but i think it's too perfect I literally, I can do a weekend and that's about it. I get pretty bored quite fast. But Bangkok has the right amount of chaos. So it's just, it feels like home and it's comfortable and it's always new and exciting. And that's what I feel about Bangkok. I love Bangkok. It's that's so why fun. you're leaving. That's why I'm leaving. <laughs> um, no, I think, I, think, I think you're right in saying that it's got a, got a really nice mix of like underbelly and like a little bit of darkness. Uh, and, you know, kind of what you said, Phil, about like the, the tourism it is a big sector, and especially in areas like Phuket, and if anyone goes down to Pattaya and stuff like that, and, you know th- there are what a lot of people would consider a dark side. But there's also, you know, even down in Phuket, you know, there's still a lot, a lot of the really nice cultural. Um, cultural yeah, I'm sorry, I, I didn't want to make Phuket sound too no, bad. No, I know, I know. <laughs> well, I mean, touching on this as well, like when I first moved here, um, I even had friends saying, "What are you doing, living in a forest or by the beach?" And it's like. There's more to Thailand. Literally, I I heard that one before. I think people's perception of Thailand is completely off. I mean, then again, I would say that (laughs) Bangkok is completely different to Thailand, the rest of Thailand. Bangkok is its own country and entity, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it makes up what, like 20% of the entire population. And um, it it is a mega city in, and, you know, on on the other side, you know, there, there there is a level of like, poverty and sort of to get a little bit dark you know there is there's that side of it as well but there's there's an element of of, you know like you said you can live so cheaply you know i think a lot of people are really happy but this is the thing right so i'm going to jump in here because so i don't see much homelessness in thailand there is some and i have seen it but i don't see too much homelessness on the streets and i think the poverty level is there however we know for a fact that I'm sure all of you know that it's very easy for Thai people to get a job. They can literally quit their job same day, next day walk into another job. Yeah, that's in one the, of the UK, main problems in the hospitality industry. In yeah, no, you're very right. Yeah. But in the UK, I kid you not, uh, Brighton, where I went to university, there's one homeless person for every seventy people that live there. You go up the high street, there's people living in the fucking doorways of shops. They, I mean, the homeless problem and poverty level in England is far worse than it is in Thailand. I think. I think there's then, you know, I, and maybe this is not something we want to speak about too much since this is normally like a drinks and food podcast, but like, you know, you've all, you also got to remember that there's like Klong Toy slums, which, although you, okay, yeah, they're not homeless, but you've got five people living in a corrugated iron shack. Yeah, you get, of, wait, wait, you get this everywhere in the world. Like, this yeah, is not something, you get it in London, co- you get it in Germany, you get it in Romania. Co- compare, comparing, comparing... I didn't see this, it in Dubai, though. Yeah, comparing the size, though... I saw tents in Dubai. Comparing the size, though, of, of that sort of built-up area that we see in Bangkok, comparatively to... You, know, you, you said Brighton, you know, Aberdeen or wherever. Yeah, there's obviously maybe more homeless people, but from speaking from Aberdeen, there's not... 
built up of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of people living in like proper, proper slums. But the difference with Aberdeen in, in England. That is true. And that's, that's what I mean. I'll, I'll, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it all, all ebbs and flows. Um, I think, I think one thing, you know, you kind of said like the variance between that low end, the, the chicken rice, the street food, and then, you know, it's also done quite well as Thailand of doing the high end as well. You know, you said you can go, I don't know where you're going and spending $700 uh, in a night. I can give you a list. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, there, there, there's, you know, I can't it's remember. called a good Friday night. I can't remember how many Michelin star restaurants we have or how many. Well, um, I mean, don't get me started on the Michelin guy. No, because I know, I know. But firstly, I think they didn't do a very good job here. And obviously it's. I mean, it's all politics. I'm just going to throw it out there. Oh, all totally. Com- all competitions are. Yeah, yeah, totally yeah. It's like uh, if the, it's like even like coming back to this, and I know this is a very sensitive subject, the awards that bars and restaurants get, like it's so unjustified for some people who work really, really hard for. It, it's all about, I, I, I'm not saying they don't deserve to be in the list, but. Sometimes it's questionable. So, sometimes it's questionable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's even like categories where you, you can't define like high volume bar. Have you doesn't have doesn't have a, a prerequisite for what they consider high volume? Well, this is true. How much is high volume? Is that six hundred cocktails a night? Like, what's what's the level? I mean, How do you one have to cocktail be in per minute won't get you inside fifty best. Just saying. I that's think pretty bar- high think, fucking volume, though. I think bartenders doing. No, no, that's only on mojito. I'm not talking seconds. about all our other signatures, but and won't get you inside. So. Basically, it's most about product placements and sponsors, and you have to work with the brands and the brands that sponsor. You know, a lot of these big organizations, they, they're just a bit lost now. They're so high up, they're not, they're not on the ground level anymore. They don't know what's really going on. Have you, have you heard about my awards, my food awards? Which one? I think Daniel's the only person. I like that slide promotion. Lovely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Which one? I mean, come on, it's my podcast. This, can, this is. This is <laughs> I can promote. For you, for those of you that are, can't see this, Gabriel slides a couple of thousand baht under the table to Chris. <laughs> um, Legit, that's not happening. But <laughs> Legit, I will. I will actually happily say it because it, it's out in the open now. We're doing a food awards with gastronomy lifestyle. Oh yeah, I know about that. I heard oh, about. It. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I heard about. So that. I mean, just to promote my own show because I can. Um, <laughs> because it's your show at the end. It's uh, we're doing the. Gastronomer Food Awards Bangkok. But the reason it's going to be different is we're having multiple stages. Now, what we're doing firstly is we're having 30 judges from uh, different sectors. So these are influencers, F&B professionals, media. These 30 judges will then go out to different restaurants and shortlist uh, 10 venues for each category. And we've got 15 categories. Now, we're not like some of the other people who just do fine dining. We're doing street food from fine dining. Chef of the Year, we're doing, you know, um, Design of the Year. There's so many different awards. But once it goes to, once these judges shortlist the top 10, it then goes to public vote. The public have the final say. So we're being completely transparent. And how do you pick your judges at the end of the day? Yeah, good question. So the first year, obviously, we have to choose the judges. And there is a panel. And there's about me and five other people who are on this panel, basically, and they're the judging committee. We're choosing these 30 judges based on the fact that they're not involved so much in the F&B as they don't have a restaurant or a bar. So you've got the top first 10 is like influencers, basically, people that have a criteria. 40s. Yeah, people who go regularly to eat in restaurants and drinks. Then you have F&B professionals, and these could be um, culinary professionals who teach, teach cooking in the schools. And we have media as well. 
what we want to do after the first year, because the first year we have to choose, after the first year, the judges will nominate someone else to take their place. I have tried very hard to get on the judging panel, and but it's not worked. And You're leaving that. Thailand. You've got know, no chance. I know, I know. This is before that. You can be in the judging panel in Malaysia. <laughs> I have, I've actively, I've actively vied for anyway, a position, but it's not, so it's not given. Just to, to clarify that, that was meant to happen this year. Obviously, everything went wrong with COVID and the pandemic, but we're doing it next year, and we're actually doing a pretty big event, and I'm really excited to show everyone. But that's not happening yet. So what I want to do is not another different discussion. Philip, tell me your favorite Italian restaurants in Bangkok. We're going way off topic here, but yes. I actually saw a post, somebody asking it. It's this is what on, I'm asking. Somebody yeah. asked on Facebook, what's your favorite Italian restaurant? And I was thinking about it because I drove past. Okay. Um, been in Bangkok now a little bit over two years. Obviously, there's a lot of different places that you you know get told by people, this is the best pizza, this is the best salad, this is the best pasta, this is whatever. Um, I'm, I'm going to be very straight up and very honest. I was recently introduced to a place in Satuan that is called Via Emilia because a good friend of mine did the consulting there. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not shy of mentioning them because this is one of the best pizzas and at the same time one of the best breads and pastas that I've had so far in Bangkok. And I'm telling you, I've, de- I've, I've tried a lot of uh, Italian places. And um, the, the name, I believe, is not that well known outside of the F&B industry. But like the pizza is, is just banging, banging. Like it, it blew my mind. We went there for a birthday, um, shared some pizza, and it was just mind blowing. And you know, you always have your your big names um, of of restaurants that are good. And I'm on purpose not going to mention them now because this one really was in the last, I'd say, in the last twelve months was the one that really stood out for me because. I haven't heard about it myself. A friend of mine introduced me and I had like one of the best pizzas I've ever had in Bangkok. I was just thinking it might sound strange to the audience who are literally around the world right now. Um, why I would ask about Italian restaurants in Bangkok. But but generally there are a lot of really good Italian restaurants, right? I mean, that, that's there a are thing. a lot of them. Italians Bangkok. really came to Thailand and, and went hard. Italians and French people. I don't right. think there are any French left in France. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, where are you from? France. Where in France? Paris. I think Paris is just an empty capital. Yeah. There's, I mean, another question I move on to. Um, okay, so this is going on a little bit further. So obviously I write a lot about bars and restaurants. That's kind of what I do on a daily basis. And um, I meet a lot of people as well. And so for the audience, obviously, there are some good Thai restaurants. Most of them are you're literally back at a corner in a shack with someone cooking in a little grill. That, that's your best sort of Thai restaurant. But when it comes to Thai and fine dining... I've always found it's, it never really materializes that well. I found people don't get it right. But there's one restaurant I found did it so perfectly. Uh, I won't say to the restaurants they did it bad, but Sawan is the only fine dining restaurant in Thailand that I thought did Thai food and fine dining spot on. What do you guys think to that? I don't know if I've been to a fine dining Thai restaurant since I got here. I also don't think I can pick a favorite Italian restaurant because barely I ever eat Italian out, which sounds really, really awful. I, can I pick totally, because totally you're agree leaving. On. You can definitely no, pick no. because you're leaving, so you won't have enemies in <laughs> no, this. No, no, like <laughs> I, I, I genuinely was trying to think because of p- Italian restaurants that I've been to. Um, one, you know, it is obviously now shut on Soy Eleven, but Cantina. I used to go to to see the wonderful Gabriel, great pizza, great pasta. But I just I can't think of the last time other than that I've been out to have. Italian food. 
I actually I believe that, um, and I mean this in a, in a, the nicest way possible because I love to eat Thai food. I think as per maybe it's a little bit more of a of a commercial way of looking at the whole fine dining because you know, in, in a way it's it's supposed to be dictated by certain ratings by certain stars or whatever it is. Um, I think most of those things that uh, that get rated get rated purely because of the people behind it, because the ingredients they use, because of the, f- unfortunately, many times, the fanciness of those ingredients. Mm. And I tell you what, like, the I think Thai fine dining, for me personally, may- maybe it's because I, I really attach to Thailand now, but Thai fine dining, for me, is when I go to a street food restaurant and I get a, a kapow, like a stir-fried uh, seafood with rice and a fried egg that serves it with really, really fresh, nice seafood. That, for me, is, is Thai fine dining, and it's like two bucks. Well, the thing I found that goes wrong with Thai fine dining is that they try to go super authentic. Um, I think that's great. I mean, it's great to go authentic and it's great to go to traditional recipes, but then most of the time I wouldn't class it as fine dining. I feel that's where a lot of restaurants go wrong. It, it, it's tough as well because I know there's the traditional aspect of what fine dining is, but is fine dining amazing, amazing food with fine dining service? Or is it where you're going into the purpose of you know, creating out there sort of dishes. And it's the same, you know, we, we talk about bars a little bit more between us. Um, you know. Just just to jump in, <laughs> Gabriel is holding up emotionally the Aberfeldy 20 and we're all very excited to drink it. Um, Exceptional cask. <laughs> Exceptional cask. Um, so, like, you know. God bless you. Do, uh, like, for a bar... If the bar is making the world's best martinis, daiquiris, and so on with fine service, you know, we value that as, as a classic. You know, you're looking at, obviously they've done Invitifeng, but you're looking at the Savoy, you're looking at the Connaught, and, you know, bar, you know, Mandarin Oriental as well in Bangkok, you know. You're looking at those, those amazing classic places, but for, for, for maybe it's a question, do you guys think fine dining Thai food should be amazing traditional Thai food with fine dining style service, or do they need to do something innovative with the food well fine dining is, is a lot of it yeah it's is everything can it's come the experience it's the, the experience 100 percent. it is the experience but like to jump on this conversation i i haven't been to the restaurant you mentioned but i've been to bolan we'll go together bolan i was disappointed oh, i love bolan guys i loved it oh i, I loved it was it. amazing really i, I yeah. honestly thought it was amazing i was so upset i've been to for lunch and dinner i loved it the thing with me is that I do cherish the fact that they're trying to touch the tradi- like you said the traditional dishes, but like I, I'm a I I come from Transylvania, so like we believe in the history and you should never forget the history and so on. So I love the fact that they're going that way. But I also agree with the fact that okay, you're doing traditional, but do a little bit of fusion, make your own interpretation. Like for example, like Adrian um, Elbaden with. Uh, after he moved on from El Toro in Spain on the f- World 50 Best Restaurants, and he opened tickets in Barcelona, which I never managed to get a reservation. I always wanted, I always wanted to go to tickets to see Adrian uh, cook. But like the thing that he reimagined everything, he re- he gave rebirth to himself, and that's one of the things which impressed me the most on the fine dining. Also, like on the topic of other fine dining restaurant you have on staying on this classic dishes right you have white rabbit moscow which is probably one of the best restaurants in the world which basically takes uh, right now i have a huge lapsus because of the whiskey of the name of the chef who runs it 
Um, but I saw the special on Netflix and I actually managed to go for a pop-up in Dubai when they were there. The thing what they did is they took the very classic 1860, 1930 recipes and they he recreated them in today's format. So he would do like mustang, for example. Like who, if I tell any of you, like guys, I'm going to eat mustang, and everyone would be like, "What?" Say, so why are you eating a car? Yeah, like, <laughs> but like, I, know, I have no idea what that is. Like moose, you know elk. Oh right, yeah. Moose. So like moose. Oh, sorry, moose my tongue. accent. Like moose tongue. It's your vampiric accent. Coming vampiric out here. I also thought you were talking about a horse, actually. <laughs> yeah. Or, oh yeah. So like these kind of recipes, and like I actually follow the guy. Like I follow him like blindly. I'm not a big fan of fine dining, honestly. Honestly, I'm not a big fan. I always wear a hat. I'm very. Ch- I need to be very chill. But like <laughs> Th- this, actually, can I say something that brings us back to the Macallan Twenty Five and Coke? Like, if you like it, if you enjoy it, if you're happy to pay for it, and you feel comfortable with it, then exactly. why not? You know. Exactly. And if right. you if I'll, you go I'll, to yeah, no, if you go to a restaurant where you spend a grand, like like a thousand dollar for dinner, and you don't feel comfortable, you don't enjoy it. Like, what's the point? So it's all about exactly. Speaking speaking of fine dining, has anyone else been to Suring? Because I'm going on Saturday, and I'm very. I've never been. I've never been, but I should go. I really should. I'm very excited. It's kind of kind of capping it off as like one of the restaurants we want to do before we leave. So, mm. uh, I think I think f- f- fine dining. I think as far as restaurants in Bangkok, I think I've been to a few, but um, none that are necessarily Thai. Um, I, I've been to you know Hundred Mahaseth. Yes. Yep. Which obviously amazing. Isn't, which place. isn't amazing. Which place. isn't what you would call fine dining. But it's definitely far above what you would consider like classic street food. But again, they've kind of maybe what you said, they they focused on the sort of more authentic, old school, traditional sort of flavors. And obviously that's just not going to please everyone. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's difficult because especially if you're in Thailand, you know, probably no fancy restaurant wants to make pad thai they want to make old school traditional thai recipes and but that's when it doesn't become fine dining like so i mean it might be because i've worked in fine dining i was in fine dining mission style for two years and um it's it's fucking crazy man the the culture you get into of of being such a perfectionist and every service you have you know you have a brief you have a debrief and you're constantly analyzing what you do it's such an intense environment and i think because of that I'm very critical now when I go to places that class themselves as fine dining. And I it's not to say that if I go to a restaurant that says they're fine dining and I had the meal, it's not to say it was a bad meal, but I would say their classifications are wrong. So if, if you've got an amazing restaurant with, you know, button tie service and everyone has to wear a jacket and all that, that's sort of what a lot of people maybe listening to the podcast kind of associate with fine dining, right? I mean, I don't think so because that's not what we had. I mean, we I was in a suit and stuff. That's what we did. I've seen the pictures. But you were in a very nice suit. I mean, I look great. Yeah, <laughs> at this point, in this point, so I can jump in, you go back to what, God rest his soul, one of my biggest idols, Anthony Bourdain, used to say, one of the best foods, one of the best food, he has this quote and I'm obsessed with Anthony Bourdain and his quotes, one of the best food is the simplest food. So you can basically be a fine dining restaurant, but stick stick to it, right? Put your effort into it, have a story behind of it, have the history, have, have a, bring your, put your soul into that food. Like we're working in hospitality, so we need to put a little piece of us every time we create a dish or a drink or food. 
So that's the thing which a lot of like everyone thinks I'm going to open a fine dining restaurant. I'm going to bring a two Michelin star chef. And it's the same thing. It's like there's no passion in the food. There's no pa- there's no elegance in the service. Did you ever watch the program? I think it was on Netflix. I don't think it's anymore. Uh, 42 grams. No. Despite your very many recommendations. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a few. Um, yeah, so this was a, a great example of someone sort of being destroyed by the industry, but also excelling. So uh, the program was called 42 Grams. I really urge everyone to go watch it. It's basically about a, a chef in America. Don't know his name. Really sorry. Um, but him and his wife had a flat above a laundromat, essentially. And he was basically cooking at home. So we do private dining, fine dining at home, invite people over, you know, seats of 10. Uh, and he did pretty well. And he, he raised enough money to buy the laundrette downstairs below his flat. And uh, he bought this space, turned it into a fine dining restaurant. And the, the show, the movie basically shows the whole process of when he bought it to, to what happened at the end. And what he said at the beginning was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start this. I'm going to get two mission stars in the first year. And it, it was like, Everyone just thought it was a bit of a joke. You know, his wife was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and support him. You know, we'll get there. And obviously he launched the, did the venue. And it was a tiny venue. Like, I think it could only seat 20 seats. And I think that's a really good way to go if you're doing fine dining. But anyway, you saw the struggles. You saw the arguments. You saw everything that went wrong over this period of a year. And at the end of the movie, he got a call from the mission guide. And it's like, you... You've just won two mission stars. And he burst into tears. He cried, like, literally. And there was such an emotional moment. But what also happened, his wife left him. Because basically in, in hospitality, you sacrifice, you sacrifice everything. Christmas, New Year's, birthdays, whatever you call You name it, we sacrifice it for the better Bar, better happiness of the people around you that's why i'm keep telling everyone like everyone's like i always like phil said you know you have the best job in the world you get paid to drink and party all night i'm like yeah did you ever see my pnls or three hours of sleep per night like the guys it's, right it's a lot of fun until like like phil said like you have to look at numbers you have to make sure like everyone you see 400 500 people per night and you have to make sure you have leave a good impression on everyone. You have to make sure everyone is happy. Of course, you cannot make everyone happy. And the people who are not happy, you have to go tend to them. You have, okay, what's what's wrong? Like, you know, the whiskey that the bartender poured is not what I asked for. This doesn't taste like doers. I was like, and you look at them and like, sorry, like, uh, or are you an official connoisseur? Are you a tasting master of whiskey? Like, what do you mean it doesn't taste the same? But you can't, you could never say that to a guest, right? You have to like, I'm really sorry. Take it off. Put another drink in front of him. And even you trust your bartender. You trust your team. They're your family. They're your blood. And still, you will have to handle this. So that's why that's why it's like that's actually I was just thinking about it. Like, is 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 anyone in the room married? No, not yet. <laughs> I mean, I've had many offers. Yeah, me too. Of course, <laughs> it's there funny because like girls standing in, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, we like got a, a line. line out the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, waiting for us to finish the podcast. It's also funny because all of us just kind of shook our heads, but we realized now that. If it's a podcast, so the answer was no across across the board. <laughs> we all just like shook our heads in silence. Well, I think I wanted Daniel's to get in the engaged. I wanted. I thought you were engaged. 
No, no, I bought the ring, never ah, gave it. So Do you still I, have it? No, I, I, I sold it and went on a trip to Dubai for 10 days. Nice. Where I visited <laughs> bars <enough>. and restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Michelin restaurant. It was yeah. amazing, I swear. I, I was like, she said no, I sell it, I go on holiday. <laughs> no, she did. She never saw the ring, to be oh. fair. She never saw oh, that's even sadder. Now I'm really like heartbroken. <laughs> it's, everyone's okay. I had an amazing time in Dubai. Oh. But it's, like, it's, it's one of the things that I... I um, um, certainly keeps our industry really like interesting. Ex- maybe exciting is the wrong word, but like, about what, what we spoke about earlier is um, that you know all four of us we're very passionate about what we're what we're doing, and a lot of us started very differently. And um, I would say you you'll never meet someone in their food and beverage in general career in their first or first two years telling you that they love their job so normally it's something that needs to develop and then eventually if you if you meet someone who's been in the industry for more than five years um, there's a pretty good chance that that person is quite passionate about it you know and I'm uh, like again not not talking bad about my family but I have a lot of people in my family I'm not joking huh? a lot of people who've been working the same job for 25 years because they can take it they can handle it and uh, they're okay to, you know, provide for their family. And that's about it. And that, that's one of the things I love about our industry because if unless you're passionate about it, you, you, you can't really stand. Like, you cannot survive long. Uh, like Philip was saying, that after a couple of years, you, cannot, you will see people who literally do this stuff out of passion. And basically, they will sacrifice everything around them just for, like, the good of strangers at the end of the day. Every guest that walks through the door is, like, you make a connection with them. This is what I was going to go into, yeah. So, when I was younger, and I don't know how it was for you guys, but I'd like to hear. um, I started literally just pulling pints in my friend's bar just to get drunk. When you were younger, you said, like, you're really old, by the way. Well, I mean, I'm 30, 31 next month. I think Happy I'm, birthday. Thank you. you How old are you guys? Um, are you ready for this? I'm 29. Bah! Beat you by a year. Philip? 33. Oi, okay. 24. Well, I'm I'm <laughs> sort of in the middle. That's okay. Yeah. But what I wanted to say... This is like the first time I'm the oldest person in the room, by the way. Congratulations. <laughs> but Cheers this is that. not the Cheers first time you're the tallest. <laughs> Cheers, that. Cheers, Cheers that. guys. So, actually, what I want to say is... That, um, when I first started in hospitality, I remember very clearly my mum hated it. And she was like, no, get a job as a policeman. Get a job as a fireman. You're always going to have a job. You're going to have work. You know, be one of those. And I was like, but I love hospitality. I love being around people. I love drinking and, and you know, being in an environment. And when I said to my dad, my dad said something which I really loved. And he said, well, you know what? People are always going to want to eat and drink. So you're always going to have a job to go for it. And that's something that stayed true in me, really was. And looking back now, 12 years ago, I think it was, when I first started in that shit student bar and, and saying that, I'm so happy because I've worked in some incredible places and met some incredible people just and to stay And you traveled and you met people and that's what exactly. people don't see and understand. Yeah. That's one of the things. Like when I, I still have people back home in Romania asking me like, when are you going to get a serious job? And I'm like, and I'm like, guys, <laughs> chayen yen as we say in Thailand. 
Like, you know, and like I got that also. My parents were like kind of supportive, but they were like, are you actually not going to do this college? And they never understood it until the first time I flew them over to Dubai and they saw a five-star luxury hotel and the hospitality side. And now, like, I love my parents with that. So they're the most supportive. Whatever we do, they share. They share everything. Like, they share and they post and they're very proud of me and, and I love them to that. But, like, in the beginning... It's there. There's this mindset. Unfortunately, there's this toxic mindset where, like, oh my God, you're just serving drinks. Oh my God, you're like, um, uh, so it. This is just a college job, and people are like, no, this is a fucking career, mate. I was yeah, like, it's become a career, and yeah. I think the industry has opened up so much now, and I'm so grateful for that. Really, you know, I've I've met some incredible people through this career who have not just been servers, but who've like diverged into different sort of aspects of, of hospitality and food and drink and yeah there are multiple options to go into food and drink actually i mean this might be a question for more philip and daniel and so i said this in my recent and i'm gonna have another plug here but i did a seminar for barcomp in berlin very whoop happy whoop. about don't know if you listen to whoop whoop. but one of the things i said is that the the old traditional um progression route in hospitality or the bartender world anyway it was sort of bartender bar manager brand ambassador and then maybe bar owner and that was kind of it but from talking to the guests i've had on the show jesus christ there are so many different avenues and actually firstly for daniel being a brand ambassador and not just for thailand but for southeast asia that's a pretty big role and you came from scotland to a new sort of continent and, and sector that's pretty big and then also for philip Philip, you came from bartending, but you're now a sales director of a distribution company. In One of the best, by the way. Just want to point it out over totally, there. Totally, but that's a pretty big role to hold. And clearly, there's a lot of things behind that, which I think a lot of the audience will want to know about. Okay, okay. So one of the things that I always... Actually, like like Gabby mentioned already, um, the, the very basic thing... Um, when I started to work as a bartender while I was going to university, I also experienced a lot of uh, things that Gabby just mentioned before. That like, I mean, again, like I love them, rest in peace. But my grandparents always told me that you know they're very proud of me studying mechanical engineering, but they were not too proud of the bit of me serving drinks to other people. And I was like, yeah, but it's like it's really fun, and actually, you get to know a lot of people, you get to know a lot of different personalities. And um, one of the things that I actually I'd, um, I'd like to share with every young bartender out there is that what you're doing and what you're experiencing behind the bar is a lot more than serving drinks. And if, you, if you're passionate about it and if you do it the right way, it'll go along, like you, you, you'll go a lot further than many other people because, um, and it's also a very funny uh, story because uh, my cousin is a therapist and I had a conversation with us. Uh, was a long time ago, like three years ago, with her. And then she basically told me that I know way too well how to answer her therapy questions because we did we did this for fun, you know, like my 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 cousin trying to analyze my brain, whatever. And then she was asking me like, how how do you understand like the questions that I ask you and how to answer? And isn't that? And I'm like, yeah, because I'm a bartender. Like, I've been working in bars from. 6 p.m. to 3 a.m., many, many nights of the week, many, many months of the year and many years of the 
of the century, if you want to say. It. But anyways, you when you're working as a bartender, you just you're not just serving drinks, you're not just listening to people, but you get to experience so many different cultures, different religions, different characters, and different problems. Different different problems, and like let, let's be honest, a lot of people come to a bar after nine or ten p.m. because they had a, a rough day. They just want to have a drink and they want to have someone to talk to. And this is—I think this is a, is a key understanding that bartenders, especially young bartenders, need to understand before growing their career. That there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of um, understanding of mindset development that you really have to go through in order to be successful. So, to jump in here, it's to raise a question with you. So I. I am classified as a, I don't know if you've ever done a personality test, but I'm an INFJ. That's that's basically what I am, my personality type. I'm an empath, so I can read people's emotions very well, can understand people as well. You must have to have that as well, and I think it touched on what you were saying about being able to understand people or ask answering the questions your sister posed to you. Do you feel yourself to be an empath or empathetic and understanding of, of how people react to situations? Yeah, 100%. I think it like being um, a bartender for many years, it's sort of it's a thing that that naturally comes with what you're doing because you know, I've seen I've seen rich people coming to our bar just celebrating that they sold whatever million dollars contract to someone, uh, celebrating at the bar just having a good time, talking to me like, "Hey, you know, like just make these drinks, make these guys happy and we'll, you know, tip you a fortune." And at the very, very other end, I've seen people coming to the bar who were pretty much on the edge of suicide, you know, and they just wanted to have a good drink. They wanted to tell me that they just got divorced, like their their wife was cheating on them and whatever. And they literally like they they, they were done, you know. And um, I'd say I've seen almost everything in between. So obviously, um, I, I, I'll be honest, I had a lot of good teachers, like a lot of good bosses, bar managers, whatever, on top of me who were showing me how to deal with those situations the right way, as, especially as a young bartender, you know. So they were they were reading the situation and they were understanding what those customers were up to and then they were showing me how to how to handle them. And, you know, and if it's like, you know, some, some rich people celebrating, then, you know, there's a certain way of treating them in order to, to make sure that they're having a good time and you have a good time too. And, um, and it, it sounds... It sounds very weird, but even the people who are on the edge of suicide, when they come to your bar, there's a certain way of dealing with them to give them a little bit of a reason to get up again the next day and and you know like try again basically you know. And I think because I've been I've been doing that job for many many years, I, I would say because of that I I'm pretty good in reading people, which yeah last but not least and at the end of the day I also sell alcohol so it is it is a big advantage. Um, having that experience, but yeah, but yeah, at the end of the day, the most important part is really that you understand what you're actually doing and what you can learn from that and take away as a life lesson, you know, in order also to, yeah, to really like li- live a better life yourself and just help others yeah, live a I better life that. too. I get that. It's um, yeah, I, I touched on well-being in in the BCB event. I think. Um, well-being is is a bit more spoken about now. We we talk about it, which I'm very ha- happy about. You know, like one of the things I said is that if you look at our parents' generation, anxiety anxiety wasn't a thing. Like there was nothing that what was anxiety depression you just didn't talk about. 
you know, and and looking after your well-being. It was like, well, you know, everyone's happy, everyone's fine. It, like, Do you that think was the, the world is becoming a little bit too sensitive? Oh like man! That. Oh Jesus! So <laughs> like that's, I mean, that's one of my topics, and like especially like I really wanted to because you said this because when we grew up, basically we're all the same age. Wow, there's three, four years. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, like what Philip said, like you would have to talk to a lot of people inside the bar. You would have to make sure you attend to a lot of people inside the bar. But what I noticed running a bar is that people are way more sensitive these days. So like you cannot say like now there are binary, non-binary, all kind of genders that appeared over the night. And I really think, like you said, that people, like when you we were growing up, there's no such thing as ADHD, right? There was like, you're a kid with energy. You need to go take sports, so then you don't have enough energy. Now they're popping pills into kids. Yeah, it's it's a tough subject. Do are, are we too sensitive? Maybe in some circumstances. Like, if you look at Dave Chappelle. Yeah, I mean, I think on on the topic of like sensitivity, I think the one thing I always and you people, you know, this probably comes up over dinners, over bar rooms with people all the time, or offices. And I think you know, is it that is it really that difficult for for majority of people to to understand? You know, yes, there might be different pronouns than maybe five years ago, but is it that difficult to, to ask and use them? You know, we, we've spoken, Phil kind of mentioned it especially well about how we need to, as hospitality professionals, cause, you know, um, understand what people are needing and also understand how people are feeling. And that kind of, you know, transpires into everyday life where yeah, is it really that difficult to, you know, maybe you meet someone, you go, okay, this person is not going to understand a joke that I find funny, so I'm not going to tell it. And then you can meet the next person and go, okay, this person is going to find that funny. And I think that's something that we've obviously maybe experienced a little bit more. And But I think, are they too... I don't think as a world, the world is too sensitive. I think there's a lot of people that are more open to displaying their sensitivities that they maybe weren't in other generations. I think we've become more evolved. We we understand that. We we see more of what's going on around the world. But I think there should still be a sense of sensibility. And I guess with hospitality, touching on to what we're talking about, you kind of have to always be sensitive in these cases. Yeah, right? but like Phil said, because he's been working in the bars for years, like you always have this rage of people that come in from like, from the thought that high spenders that just signed a million like exactly like he said high spenders that signed a million dollars to a suicidal guy you have to be sensitive about everyone inside this range and you always have to take care of people's feelings but what i personally think right now is that people are like looking for natural triggers especially in the usa i'm talking about jimmy fallon they're like you can't call me this or you cannot say this or you and basically it's becoming such a huge thing that it affects all aspects of the industry like i'll give you an example i don't know if i should talk about this but like it shocked me really badly so in california there was there was a law passed currently that if you identify as a woman no restaurant and this is this is inside the topic of which we are in the hospitality industry so if you identify as a transgender and i have nothing against anyone so what uh what transgenders or gay people i love everyone i support everyone but like what happened recently that in a spa and in a restaurant someone 
in an only female way spa someone a guy walked in and he was i'm identifying as a woman so he walked inside the spa and wait wait it gets better it gets better so like fully naked there were little kids little girls like women like women were bringing their kids in and like their children in and this went a little bit off topic because the some of the ladies complained and the guys because of the the law inside california they were like we cannot do anything about it he identifies as a woman so there was a huge protest i don't know if you guys saw i followed it on twitter for there was a huge protest where basically they bashed the spa and the restaurant so like people were going throwing rocks at the spa like completely destroyed their business and the image of business so because they were just following the law, they weren't doing anything wrong. They they just said, like, I'm really sorry, we cannot we cannot do anything wrong. We cannot kick him out because this is the law in California. So that's what I mean that by people are getting too sensitive. And the business completely shot. So they took someone's dream and they completely destroyed it. Just because they were following the law. Actually, I think like coming coming back to to our topic and what we're what what we're talking about. I think, and you know, we were not going to talk about the pandemic a lot, but I think the pandemic also had a big influence on how um, people are aware of different things. You know, because people have been spending a lot of time at home, um, deciding on if they want to be male, female, or they want to be a robot, or they, what what is happening, and people just really. Um, no. Or if they want to be a robot, <laughs> I got a robot, like fridge. Honestly, I think that is a j just be, be um, yeah. Following up on what I said before, I think um, uh, including all of us, but also like the growing people working in food and beverage and hospitality, like that's that's basically the next generation people that we'll be dealing with. You know, people who are very aware of what's going on who are very aware of what they can ask for, what they should ask for. And um, just like understanding that hospitality is, got, is basically taken to a whole new level of you know what we've been doing before, what we've been doing now, and what we will be doing in the future. Just because, um, and I mean, you guys you guys call it sensitivity, but I think it's just people being more aware of, of what's happening, what can happen, and just going a little bit, different direction in their lives of where they want to be, what they choose to be, who they choose to be. Um, and I think it's going to be, I mean, I take it as a challenge. I think it's going to be very interesting in our industry, you know. Definitely, it's a challenge. On, on that topic, and I know it's a very small factor, but it is, you know, talking about people that identify as um, women um, in this, you know, using female bathrooms when they were maybe, you know, born as a male and so on and so forth. I just don't think it's that hard if you're a new restaurant to just put in gender neutral stalls. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I, I completely agree. And I had, and I had this yeah. conversation with, um, there's a, a big chain restaurant in Aberdeen and I was good friends with their general manager and all they had was stalls. They had five stalls, right? And they were all labeled male, male, fe female, female, female. And I just said, why don't you just take them off? And they're like, oh, because like that's just our style. I'm like, no, it's just stupid. You're going to get somebody that's like causing a fuss or somebody that's going to be upset by that. Someone sensitive. Someone who maybe has a different disposition to you, Gabriel. Yeah, definitely. But, <laughs> but it's it's just, I think the small changes that maybe some of us or the hospitality industry might have to make, I do think they're small. 
in in the grand scheme of some people's yeah, lives. Yeah, I agree, but that's that was my question. So we as a society are becoming way more aware of these things. So it's going even on the hospitality side and on the evolution side, it's going to be like Phil said, it's going to be a next challenge, and we just have to adapt to it as have we've been adapting for the past ten years to everything. Okay, quick, what's everyone's favorite drinks? My favorite drink. Yeah. To change the topic, <laughs> and to smooth it out. I mean, it's definitely the the plantation stick and fake fancy. My God, that rum! I can just drink straight. You know he's making a coconut version. Yeah, I I read about oh, it. It's my amazing. Was yeah, 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 I was like, I can't wait to put it inside Havana. Right. What's your favorite drink? Uh, whiskey soda. Honestly, the best, the best beer I've ever tasted was probably the Aberfeldy 40-year-old, and it's also great because I definitely can't afford it and will never get to taste it again. Um, but it was just fantastic. A very nicely done, dirty martini. To finish off, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to host you all. Uh, please come back. I'm planning to do this once a month, just having drinks, chill, chat. Do you have something to say for the listeners before you go? Thank you so much for listening. It's been truly, thank you so much for having me. It's been truly a dream come true to be on a podcast. Also, if you ever come to uh, Bangkok, please do keep in touch with Christian and he will put you in touch with all of us. Oh, yeah, once again, thanks for having me. Um, I think anyone working in our industry all over the world, like make sure moving forward you'll be understanding, tolerant, respectful, but only so much to make sure you're also confident and comfortable with what you're doing yourself. And please come, when you come to Thailand, when you come to Bangkok, give me a call. I take you for a spin no matter where you're coming from because at the end of the day, our industry, we love to come together no matter where we're from, no matter where we are, and no matter what kind of drinks we like. Might it be a cosmopolitan, a whiskey and soda, or a shot of tequila. I will say if anyone is coming to Bangkok, do hit up Phil and go for a party because it is a night you will not forget. Um, yeah, again, thank you very much um, for having us on. Um, some great whiskey and some uh, lovely mezcal drank. Um, and yeah, if half a bottles of each. If you are, if you are a young professional out there, um, remember, you know, your profession is hospitality. You can make the best drinks in the world. You can make the world's most perfect food. But if you're a dickhead and you're not a nice person, um, you're probably going to struggle. It's it's more important to be a good person and, and a nice uh, give nice service than it is to make. I think we're going to roll that, guys. Uh, once again, thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you do want to carry on and, and listen to what we do, please look on Spotify, iTunes, and all other major podcast providers. Um, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. We're, we're now up to episode 50, 52, I think, of the podcast. This is a new series we're going to carry on with, and I hope you love listening to Daniel, Philip, and Gabriel. And, yeah, please follow them guys on social media because I'll put their links in the show notes it's been a pleasure guys stay safe talk soon keep on partying thank you so much for listening to the show guys uh, we are available on spotify itunes and all other major podcast providers your support helps my show grow and i love you for listening so thank you so much if you want to be a part of it even more, please look at the show notes. You can find links to our Facebook group, The Beverage Network. You can also find links to my Patreon page where you can help the show grow even further with small donations. And you can also find my email where you can reach me anytime with any questions. You guys are amazing. I love this industry. Let's keep it growing. Thank you for listening to On The Bat Bar.